the NHS is the envy of the world. Hello, I'm Helly McGrother. Welcome to the third episode of the NHS in Stitches podcast. Say more NHS! Last episode, I shamefully forgot to mention one of the speakers in the discussion on ACOs runs a website which is called Patients for NHS. It's full of excellent information and displays a really concise and insightful understanding of what's being imposed on our NHS. So please do check it out. In this episode, I talked to the brilliant Helen Mercer, who is a very knowledgeable and ACE campaigner on the issue of PFI. PFI is an extortionate funding method used more and more to pay for capital projects like schools and hospital buildings. I discussed with Helen how through PFI, successive governments have essentially shifted the huge financial responsibility for these essential projects from the national government taking all the costs off their books to the given local body causing them financial havoc. I remember PFI being sold to us as a great way to get business to share some financial responsibility for the country's infrastructure that allows them access to a healthy, well-educated workforce. Well, I thought that was what our tax system was all about. However, surprise, surprise, what's actually happened is that large international corporations have developed a whole hugely profitable industry around PFI, locking in extortionate interest rates and charges paid for by the given hospital, for example, but funded by you and me, the taxpayer. From this, they take these huge profits, which are then so often hidden in offshore tax havens. Well, it doesn't have to be that way, and Helen offers a very compelling solution to the problem. When the question comes up, as it often does, about whether we can afford an NHS or not, I think it's really worth remembering just how much is spent on private systems like PFI that have been forced on the NHS over recent decades. Before we crack on with our chat, I want to tell you about Helen's touring exhibition called How Come We Are Still Paying For This. It illustrates the extent that PFI is being used around the world and in Britain. You can actually see a digital version of the exhibition and further information on the website peopleversuspfi.org.uk. Here we go then. Uh, I'm here with Helen Mercer, who is a campaigner um, on PFI, um, and we're here to discuss uh, about PFI and all the details of it. Again, it's um, quite an involved thing, so a good conversation is a, a good way of understanding it. I think we're here with Zizi, who is Helen's little dog as well, so you might hear some paws patting about. So, hi Helen. Hiya. Um, can you... Um, Give me a little background what your campaigning activities are, have been. Okay, um, well I think I started, I first got interested in PFI as a result of being involved in the Save Lewisham Hospital campaign um, and then since then I've also been involved in an organisation called Drop NHS Debt which focused on PFI and the NHS and in a group called People versus Bart's PFI and also I'm currently working a lot with People versus PFI which has a as a website if people want to go on it. Right, so you know your stuff, you've been researching so. for a while anyway. now. A little while, yeah, a few years, yes. <laughs> <laughs> great, well thanks for joining us, it's really great to have your knowledge and experience. Um, 
So we've got a few questions, um, which will just frame the conversation rather than dictate it so much. Um, but um, should we should we get going? Yeah. Could you explain what PFI is, first of all, and maybe give us a bit of background about where it all started? So PFI stands for the Private Finance Initiative. It's basically a different way of procuring public infrastructure. And it procures it not through government borrowing, which has been the traditional way of raising the money needed for such investment, but borrowing from the private sector, from banks and these private infrastructure funds. Um, PFI also means that the private sector builds and services major projects, again, things done used traditionally by the state. And I would say in many ways it's a, what I call a poster child for neoliberalism. The financial sector intrudes deep into the heart of the public services, loading down public services and public authorities with debt, and public assets become the basis of financial deals. Uh, profit is spun off these public assets in a variety of different ways. And additionally, um, the private, uh, PFI has been a major driver in the privatisation and outsourcing of public services and the maintenance of, of infrastructure and the provision of cleaning and catering and those sorts of services. And where that happens, of course, we see all the typical elements of outsourced services, insecure, low-paid jobs, lower levels of unionisation and very often poorer service provision as well. I think maybe it's good to say one of the important aspects of PFIs is the sheer length of the contract. Um, they're on average 27 years. This makes the whole contract, the whole uh, agreement, very inflexible. Um, because at the point that the contract is signed, all sorts of changes maybe can't be envisaged. They may be changes in demand for a service. They may be changes in best practice. They might be changes in new technology. So you're sort of almost building in obsolescence. And it actually makes, ironically, it makes private involvement in our public sector less innovative than state provision. And of course we know that with um, health particularly, there are, there are all sorts of new innovations coming up all the time. And so it means that those, those hospitals and that healthcare cannot actually go with the times and keep up to date with what's going on. No, and particularly new methods, new systems of doing things. And I think you see it particularly in areas where technology is very significant. So particularly, say, waste, uh, PFI contracts for waste recycling or for IT systems. Uh, changes are happening very, very quickly and you need to be able to respond quickly. And of course, ironically, some of the those for example, the IT changes are actually imposed by government, aren't they? We we want you to do it this way now, but they're trapped into these contracts, yes. so they can't actually do that. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> and of course, I mean, on top of that, it's a very expensive way of developing infrastructure. So it's reckoned the National Audit Office, it costs roughly double um, what it would have cost if government borrowing had been used. Um, and you're laden down with these, this debt and this intractable contract. And you asked me also about where, where it all started. Mm. It was introduced under John Major's government, but it saw its heyday under the Blair and Brown administrations, and most of the operational PFIs were signed in that period. But there are lots of PFI-style deals still being signed. PFIs are actually um, a the UK form, if you like, of what are known internationally as public-private partnerships. And a lot of PPPs are being signed, and perhaps maybe the, one of the big ones is... Uh, the project for a new London sewage system, which is the Thames Tideway Tunnel. That's a PPP with a total estimated cost of over £4 billion. Wow. So we haven't seen the end of these at all. They're still mm. going on. Um, 
I suppose another thing from that as well is um, that by the time that 27 years is up, that hospital may be in need of complete refurbishment mm. by then, mightn't mm. it? So you end up with another cycle, <laughs> possibly yeah. of a whole other PFI. Yeah. I lump. think I think this is one of the things we've really got to guard against, that I think you can't be sure that you, but A, that the, the hospital or the whichever it is, is still useful to you anymore because building these days is done on a very short time basis. You don't, they don't expect buildings to last beyond 30, 40, at the mm. most 50 years. Um, but also, of course, needs will have changed. So again, yes, an uh, ageing population may need an, a larger geriatric ward yeah, or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah. Are there other ways governments can raise funds for capital projects like big hospitals and schools and things? Well, I mean, all other means of funding capital projects will rely on government borrowing of some sort. Um, government borrowing is always cheaper than borrowing by the private sector because governments generally have pretty cast iron credit ratings, you know, they don't default mainly. Um, and at the moment in particular there's no excuse for not using straightforward government borrowing because interest rates on government bonds are so low. That's, that's a, if I might just interrupt, that's an interesting point because um, I presume when these very long contracts are first um, instigated and signed, they, they had a, a built-in interest rate into the repayment payments that the the trust the hospital trust or the educational authority have to uh, pay um but i don't suppose because it's such a locked in contract i don't suppose those interest rates go down our interest rates are historically low at the moment aren't they but yeah. I, I guess those interest rates haven't gone down with those contracts they haven't um one well there are two things here one is that part of the uh, loan is provided by the people who own the spv which i think we're going to talk about later mm. and that interest rate is fixed and the interest rate on the rest of the loan is also fixed as a result of something rather complex called an interest rate swap. So, so whereas the initial debt might be a floating interest rate, which will go up and down with um, general line of interest rates, what they do is they then swap that for a fixed rate, um, for a fixed rate of interest, uh, which means that it's, it's and they, they do it to guard against interest rates going up. Well, of course, interest rates have gone down, so they've lost out that way as well. So, yes, they are now on fixed fixed interest rates. So it's basically all on their terms. It's all to protect their yes. income. Yes. And it's a one-sided, seems like a completely one-sided uh, arrangement, Yes, really. So, yes, everything basically relies on government borrowing. But local, um, historically, uh, how would you get a hospital, for instance? Well, you might have applied to the Department of Health for a capital grant and they in turn would apply to the Treasury and that in turn would rely on government borrowing. Um, local authorities and bodies like uh, police, uh, the police have historically been able to borrow from uh, the Public Works Loans Board and that was a body set up um, just after the Napoleonic Wars in fact and that provides loans at a low rate of interest to local authorities. Um, so that's, that there are two other ways, and those ways are still open to people to borrow, of course. That's still open as, as a way of doing things. Oh, right. Uh, you can still do it that way. Um, and now it was said at the time that um, PFI was the only game in town. It was said that if you wanted to build your new hospital or get new schools or build a new prison, you had to do it via using PFI. And it was said that it was necessary because the government wanted to keep 
the cost of infrastructure off the government books. They wanted to keep down the level of government borrowing. Um, um, but the point is that that rule, that idea of keeping down levels of government borrowing, that was something that was completely self-imposed. It didn't have to be done. Um, the money doesn't really um, keep spending off the government books because all the money to pay for PFIs it ultimately comes from the government, from the taxpayer. And they've performed a sort of fiscal trick. They turn what would have been capital expenditure by central government into current expenditure by local authorities, by public authorities, which is current expenditure in the form of interest payments for debt. That's the trick that they pulled. And moreover, most PFI projects are basically underwritten by the government in various ways. And local government PFIs are often subsidised through the use of what are called PFI credits. So it was all a fiscal illusion, as the National Audit um, Office recently stated as well. So it seems to be a, a sort of maze-like system um, that doesn't make it any more simple or cheaper for anybody, really. That's a strange, uh, very strange thing. And, um, sorry. and given that it was all done for the sake of keeping, supposedly for keeping it off the government books, then that doesn't make sense as an argument either. And I suppose that's a purely um, political manoeuvre, isn't it? Because, I mean, we all remember that um, this whole thing of, um, what was the expression, economic responsibility or, or mm. something like that, that one party was more promiscuous with money than the other and one party was the sensible, mm. the sensible party that had a grip on the economy and all that stuff. So so this, this uh, technique was invented to basically pull the wool over our eyes to make us think that um, the government weren't spending yes. money, that yes. they actually were. And yes. it proves that there has to be investment in our infrastructure. Um, just thinking about um, how, how um, capital projects were paid for, particularly hospitals, because this is in the context of the NHS, the podcast, um, but it seems to me that um, what PFI have, has done for the NHS particularly is to devolve responsibility for new hospitals and for those sorts of capital expenditure um, to the hospital itself mm. or the trust itself, whereas before that, that sort of debt burden would have been uh, carried by central government. That, that's exactly right, that's exactly right. And as you say, also, um, the responsibility for it is all falls on the local hospital, whereas before the Department of Health would have had to have taken more responsibility, more oversight of the actual capital project, because mm. ultimately they would have been responsible for it. Mm. So why do governments choose this type of funding when it, it clearly seems not really cost effective? Is there a legal limit to how much a government can borrow? Well, I mean, for practical purpose, there's no real limits as to how much a government can borrow. Um, what has happened over the last few decades is that governments have imposed limits on themselves, really as a result of an idea promulgated in monetarist economics that public debt should be kept low. There's no real economic rationale for the idea. Um, one of those limits is imposed by the Maastricht Treaty, the European Growth and Stability Pact, and that restricts government borrowing to 60% of GDP. But Gordon Brown introduced a fiscal rule which aimed to limit UK government debt to just 40% of GDP. Um, well, my view is that those limits make no sense in themselves. 
but actually even had the government borrowed to finance these projects instead of using PFI, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure those limits would anyway have been breached. So I think we have to look elsewhere for the reasons why the government went down the PFI route. And I think it's partly a neoliberal commitment to privatisation, but also it's partly lobbying by construction firms um, who are looking for a, what they call a pipeline of government projects because that's needed to keep businesses afloat, to keep them, keep them going, make sure their, their shareholders are happy, make sure they've got a flow of projects. And also the private, the financial sector are looking now to the public sector for new areas of profit making. I think it's a new widening area of um, interest is the profits that can be made from projects which are ultimately backed by the taxpayer. Because it's a safe investment. Very safe. Mm. Again, it's not a practical money-saving or efficiency-motivated system. It's it's about basically. generating profit. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's ultimately the profit. That the taxpayer pays, pays yeah. for. <laughs> okay. Um, so an SPV, um, which we said we'd come back to, and this is this is it now, an SPV is intrinsic to a PFI setup, as I understand it. Um, can you explain what an SPV is and how it works, please? Okay. Well, we refer a lot in the exhibition uh, on PFI to um, special purpose vehicles, or the SPVs. And we've done that because we think it's important that we demystify for people the financial complexity that has been woven around the subject. A lot of people feel, oh, it's way too difficult to understand and back off. So an SPV is a private company. It's registered at Companies House and their annual reports and other documents, they're all publicly available. And it's the company that signs the contract with the public authority. So this might be a hospital or a local authority or a government department. And the SPV uh, in that contract undertakes to raise the finance for the project and to secure service and the, 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 the infrastructure once it's built is serviced. Um, Do you mean maintenance? Maintenance, maintenance yes, hospital, catering, cleaning. Um, and it, all the contracts are via the SPV, the main contract with the local authority and then all the contracts with the different service providers, the builders, um, also all the financial agreements with the people who are going to be lending money. So it's a linchpin of the whole setup. It's owned initially by a consortium of companies and these are the consortium of companies who win the bid. So when a hospital, for instance, wants to build a, 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 new, a new part or a completely new hospital, they, they, they put it out to tender. And the consortium which wins the bid then forms itself into an SPV. And it usually consists of three types of firms, three, three, three firms. One firm will be a building firm, which is going to undertake the construction. So that'll be um, a firm such as Skanska uh, or Carillion, to name a famous one. Hmm. Um, it'll be firms that, uh, uh, one firm in the consortium will be the one that's going to provide services, either maintenance or catering and cleaning. And that might be firms such as Interserve or G4S in the case of prisons or Serco. And the third type of firm is an investment company, so a company that operates funds which are specifically geared to investing in such projects. And important companies like that are um, HICL, which is originally an investment arm of HSBC, uh, Barclays, various investment funds owned by Barclays, 
um, John Lang Infrastructure Fund, and another important one which nobody's ever heard of, but it's a very important fund, which is called Innisfree, and they're, they're a very important owner of, of PFI. So that's how it's all set up. Um, so, so you've got the RASPV owned by these firms, and they sign a contract. And in return for the SPV doing all these things, raising the finance and getting the contracts in place, the public authority pays the SPV a unitary charge, which is part repayment of the debt with interest and is part ongoing payment for the services. So the investors and the lenders have a very assured stream of income because any failure to pay the unitary charge can result in penalties. And so unitary payments are ring-fenced. And of course, um, when austerity cuts have to be made, the cuts have to fall on everything but the PFI payments because they fall disproportionately on areas of public provision which are outside of the, of the PFI contracts. So a hospital, for example, that does have, we mentioned Bart's before, uh, does have a big PFI contract, they would have to, their priority is to pay off the debt. They must, they, they must pay the unitary charge. So, that, so their, sort of, their remit has shifted from healthcare first um, to, to paying off the debt first yes. and healthcare becomes second, basically. Yes, yes. Mm. yes. That's, that's, that's one way of looking at it, definitely, yeah. Yes, and I mean, as, as well as that, the reason um, SPVs are very important and, and the owners of the SPV can stand to make a, a lot of profit. So a lot of what Bart's, for instance, is paying is profit. Some of it, it, the service charge, some of that service charge would have to be paid anyway because if you're going to maintain a building or you're going to provide cleaning, etc., mm. that's got to be provided whatever. And about 60% of the unitary charge is, in fact, for services. Um, but profits are being made at every stage from the whole process. So, for instance, the people who own the SPV, they provide 10% of the uh, finance needed for the capital project. And they charge a very high rate of interest on that, anywhere between about 10 and 15%. And that's fixed all the time, no matter how the general interest rate changes. And if the SPV makes a profit, which they often do, well then they'll pay dividends to the owners of the SPV. It's, they, the owners of the SPV have got shares and they get paid dividends accordingly. So that money is going directly out of the NHS? And Absolutely away, directly Never out. to be seen again? Never, well, unless <laughs> it pops up in a tax haven. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course then there, there are banks which are making money from their side of the debt and bondholders are making money from their side of the debt. And then there are lots of other ways in which profit that just gets spun out of it. So, for instance, accountants make plenty of money. They advise on a PFI contract. They advise when a PFI, when a hospital gets into difficulty. Um, they're constantly auditing all these new accounts. Um, director's fees have to be paid. Um, and then also, of course, you get all these multifarious charges, which a lot of people have heard of. So if the, local, if the authority requires something which is outside of the contract, then the charges for that can be astronomical. Um, there's a, a, a case we mentioned in the booklet of a school in Bristol which was charged over £8,000 just to replace one blind. <gasps> or, you know, hundreds of pounds being charged to replace a lost key. Um, and it, the whole process is surrounded by bureaucracy and form-filling, whereas it would have been quite easy for the publicly run maintenance people to come out and change a lock or install a new blind, that would be quite an easy. Now you have to fill in forms in triplicate and it's going to cost an awful lot. And of course, 
I mean, traditionally, um, nationalised industries are, are, are charged with being over-bureaucratic and money-wasting, and we've got it absolutely built yeah. into these contracts. Yes, yeah. way more so, in fact, uh, yeah. than if yeah. it were being done fully by the public sector. Yeah. Of course, without, outside of that sort of setup with the, um, the PFI contracts, you could just get Fred, the maintenance bloke, to go, go down the road and buy a blind and fit that himself because he's perfectly capable of doing it. Whereas now it has to go through all these yeah. loops and jumps and hoops to, yeah. to get it done yeah. Yeah. and cost huge amounts of yeah. money. Yeah. And of course, I mean, on top of that, there are all these, well, there are several other things there. I mean, for instance, very poor construction, a lot of examples of poor construction. So we had the famous case of the school in Edinburgh where a wall fell down oh, at yes. Oxgangs Primary School. The, it was a fault found in uh, other schools in the same PFI contracts and, L, and in fact in other PFI schools elsewhere in Scotland. Uh, we have numerous hospitals now which have got serious fire problems. Peterborough Hospital is one of them. I mean, obviously dangerous situations being created by poor construction. Yeah, yeah. And on top of all that, you have to bear in mind that the construction companies and the companies providing the services, well, they're making their profits as well. <laughs> yeah. So out of these public need, profit is just being doled out to all sorts of people. Absolute opportunism, it seems to me. Yes. Completely yes. mercenary. <laughs> well, it was called a, a, a Treasury document um, that was produced in the late 1990s, referred to PFI as public benefit, private opportunity. Mm. Well, of course, it's certainly been a private opportunity, yeah. but it's been at a public cost. Mm. And will be for so And will be for many years to come, well. unless yeah. we deal with it, yes. Yeah. we're talking in the context of the NHS and you've touched on this a little bit already actually but can you describe a bit how far the PFI model goes is it used outside the NHS? Um, it's used very widely across the public sector the NHS has been a major um, element um, in it and um, hospital contracts account for about a quarter of all PFI projects and hospital and local authority projects together um, account for a 60%. So, I mean, that's a lot of the services that we experience, that the, most people in their lives experience, are um, about deeply affected by PFI. Um, local authority contracts include things like schools, libraries, waste disposal and recycling. Then there are police stations, fire stations, magistrates' courts, prisons, IT projects. Um, major defence projects have been financed through PFI, including, for instance, the refurbishment and development of accommodation for service personnel. Um, roads, that's another area. The widening and the maintenance of the M25. The very first PFI project um, was the Sky Bridge. And there are all, um, these are all projects which, the ones I've mentioned, are all projects which um, the Treasury keeps a list of uh, and details are published annually. Um, but there are many more outside of that list. So, for instance, student accommodation. Many universities have signed what are PFI projects for student accommodation. In the health service, again, lift projects are a very important element. Um, there are, um, th this stands for Local Investment Finance Trusts, and they've been used to develop um, smaller uh, health facilities, um, joint, joint health 
provision of services, GP practices. And there are about 49 of these across England, delivering over 300 smaller scale facilities. So it's very, very widespread indeed, in almost Everywhere. every area mm. of, of, the, of, of the public sector that you can think of. The Berlin Embassy, there's another one. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. So basically all our public infrastructure is, is completely influenced by this, this whole um, way of doing things. It seems that we can't really, um, can't really escape it. <laughs> it affects everybody. So who are these companies behind PFI? Well, um, increasingly, like I said initially, it's this consortium of companies, but increasingly ownership has become sort of concentrated and monopolised, if you like, um, and they tend to be owned entirely by these investment companies. I mentioned a couple, Innisfree, HICL, John Lang Infrastructure. Um, another example I would give is Semperian. If you go on Semperian's website, it tells you it has one of the largest portfolios of what they call PPP assets, um, including a major project such as University College Hospital London, the management of the M40 motorway and the Berlin Embassy. And it's, it's a very typical, this company. It's what's called a secondary market infrastructure fund. So it's, it, it became big in PFI by buying up SPVs, which had already been operating for a, for a while. Oh. Um, so they weren't in the original market for setting up SPVs, they came in and they, they bought them up at a secondary stage, as it were. So once they realise that the, the SPV is turning a profit and... Once the, once the, once the construction period is over, in particular, stage. once the risky stage is over, mm. then, um, yeah, right. they, they, they bought them up. Mm. And, 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 the, and then there's a constant market now in shares in SPVs a secondary market shares in SPVs and they, when these shares in SPVs are sold on, the companies selling them can often make a very handsome profit and it might sometimes double uh, their anticipated rate of return. Um, and then we have to ask, well, who owns these investment companies? Um, and we find that many of them are owned by companies registered in, in tax havens. So, for instance, Empyrean is owned by Aberdeen Asset Management, which um, merged with Standard Life a year or two ago, and that's based offshore in Guernsey. Um, and if you look at our exhibition, we have a picture of their registered office in Guernsey. Um, and the rest of the shares in Tempirin are owned by four pension funds, including Transport for London pension fund. But all sorts of firms might own um, might own these in, in infrastructure funds. It might be banks, it might be large banks. Um, yeah. So. You're part of a campaign, well, you're part of many campaigns and you've been campaigning about this for a long time and uh, a lot of health campaigners are um, picking this up and realising how detrimental it is to the health service and everything. Is it just us who's complaining about PFI or is there opposition in other countries? seems from what you've said that there are PFI in, in, in the rest of the world. How... You know how are they dealing with it all? Um, well, I mean, there, just recently there was um, a global a new global campaign was launched. It's against public-private par partnerships, um, and it has 152 has signatories from about 152 different organisations, unions, and aid organisations, and others from about 45 different countries. Um, organisations from Turkey, from Bangladesh, Kenya, Norway many other many other countries including Britain wow. and uh, the point they make in their manifesto which you can you can see online 
is that the World Bank, uh, G20 countries and others have been aggressively promoting these public-private partnerships everywhere and, and particularly really in the global south in very poor parts of the world. And the experience has been overwhelmingly negative and very few of them have had really provided anything which are in the public interest. Um, I mean Europe has a load of PPPs and PPPs are being signed every day but so do countries like Brazil, many African countries um, and they, <clears throat> they have all sorts of problems. Um, for instance in Uganda um, the Bujagali Dam, uh, it cost 860 million US dollars. It was jointly financed by the African Development Bank, the European Investment Bank and the World Bank. So you can see them pushing these projects. And it's damaged the ecology of Lake Victoria and also the livelihoods of, of local people. Um, and in our exhibition, we, we, uh, we give an example of the hospital uh, in Lesotho, which was rebuilt using a PPP. Um, and it's now eating up half of that country's health budget. Mm. And th their manifesto shows how P PPPs across the globe, they're expensive, they increase the cost of things like energy and water for the poor, so it increases inequality. Um, and also it, it links PFI um, signing and PFI development with corruption. So again, it's not there to help anybody apart from the, the original investors and the shareholders, and it's not there to service um, infrastructure or public services for well, people. It's formally it's supposed to be, you know, forwarding the, you know, the Millennium Development Goals. The United Nations have have got branches which are, which are interested in PPPs. Um, it's 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 a uh, it, it's it's a burgeoning area. It's not something that's dying at all. Mm. It's 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 burgeoning. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's quite important to realise that in fact the UK has played a very significant role. Britain was a sort of test bed for PFI in Britain, but the Treasury has been promoting and financing PPPs abroad, and it's a less well-known um, element of the of Labour Party policy. Uh, the briefing that was handed out in September 2017 spoke also of ending um, the role played by the Treasury in promoting and financing. PPPs abroad. Right, yeah, I didn't really know that at all, that, that we're influencing <coughs> other other, yeah. um, financial initiatives ab ab abroad. Just as an aside, um, we're mentioning your exhibition and your booklet, um, which is really informative. Uh, when are you, do you know when you're going to be showing next? Have you got something lined up? Because we had a a fabulous exhibition in Walthamstow and a really yes. good public meeting. Yes. Did you, um, are you, have you got anything We planned? have. We've got about um, three more planned well, for, maybe for the moment. Well, maybe you can let us know. And we'll yeah, yes, it would be on our on website. And yeah. Yes, yes. Great. And so what's your website? The website is peopleversuspfi.org.uk. Great. You talked earlier about the international movement against PFI and PPPs, as they're called abroad. Are we, are any of our unions or any of our campaigns connecting up with those other campaigns? Do we know? Just trying to think back to the signatories, and I think that, uh, well, certainly one major UK campaign, which is the Jubilee Debt campaign, which in, uh, campaigns against principally against usurious government debt around the world, also has campaigned against PFIs and has written a very nice little pamphlet about PFIs, 
Um, they're a, a signatory. Mm. And the Public Services International brings together all public service unions across across Europe, possibly across the world, I'm not sure. They are, they're a signatory oh, to right. this to this as well. Yeah. So I think there is there are link ups. And um, so there's yeah. clearly momentum <coughs> in all this. Yes, I think uh, so. Opposition. Yeah. I think so, yeah. yes. It's just a question of having sufficient momentum to counteract the the power of the vested interests. Yeah. Yeah. And also to a great extent now the stake that politicians have in the whole project. They mm. put their name to it and they feel that they feel connected with it now. So we've talked about what all the problems are and how odious pretty much the whole thing is. Um, and it's always good to have a, a, a positive um, <laughs> sort of aspect to these conversations. What are the solutions or are there any solutions to this problem? Because it seems so entrenched in policy and in well in in our very infrastructure how how can we get out and wriggle out of this mess <laughs> <laughs> okay i mean my my view on it is that it's it's very important to understand that all the problems of pfi the levels of debt the poor services the construction problems the outsourcing all of them they're not incidental they're fundamental and intrinsic to a model which essentially is encouraging firms to enrich themselves through appropriating public revenues. And the solution which I favour is to nationalise these SPVs. Now, um, I've already said how the SPVs are very central to the whole model. So if they're that central, if we take over, take over the SPVs, nationalise the SPVs, we get control mm. of the whole thing. For instance, the government then owns a contract with the public authority, and at the moment, these contracts are um, commercial in confidence. We can't see them. Um, unless you put in an FOI and it's a long process. So we'll be able to see what's in those contracts. So at the moment we can't even examine the contracts no. that have been agreed because they're, hit, they're hiding behind commercial Com- confidentiality. Yes, no we can't see them. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So we'd own that contract and we'd also be able to see the contracts with all the service providers, the financial agreements, the whole thing. Now that puts the government in a very, very powerful position. Um, um, when it comes to unpicking all these contracts. Um, and we think that nationalisation is, the, is a step towards ensuring that all the service contracts are brought back in-house, so they're now performed by properly paid, unionised, um, secure jobs in maintenance and cleaning and all those other things. That, are, that Particularly for hospitals, they're not ancillary to what a hospital does. They're fundamental, they're intrinsic mm. to what a hospital does. They're, they're very important elements. A clean hospital is a, is clean a functioning hospital. hospital, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. good yeah. food. <laughs> yes. Um, they're all very important. Clean laundry, it's all important stuff. Um, <clears throat> and it also means once the government's uh, got hold of it, then we can really start to seriously refinance all the debt down to a more reasonable interest, interest rate level. Something like a windfall tax, um, well, it's not really a solution. Um, it tries to deal with one of the most scandalous um, aspects of the whole PFI scam, you know, and uh, issues of tax havens and uh, the, the way in which uh, corporation tax has, has gone down over the last few years, giving companies windfall gains. It doesn't really tackle the actual debts, for instance, held by hospitals 
Um, it just means that, that some of the company's profits go back to the government. It doesn't deal with the debt the hospital is actually paying. Um, and it doesn't challenge the outsourcing and the privatisation. So I'm not against it as a, as a windfall tax, but it, it, I don't think it should parade itself as a solution. Mm, mm. I mean, one of the other main solutions proposed is buyouts. Well, the trouble is that um, when you negotiate a buyout, essentially you're having to negotiate your way out of a commercial contract. And therefore you're bound by the terms of that commercial contract. And that means that um, one example, for instance, we know of, the investors and the banks walked away with, with all their future anticipated profits intact, received early. And of course, they walked away from any of the risks that the PFI might so be facing. So it would be a big windfall for them. So it's actually a, it really is a windfall for them. Um, and obviously, the, the, local, the public authority also gets something out of it. Their costs are reduced, although not by huge amounts, but they have got more flexibility. Um, but we can do it much more cheaply. We can get out of them much more cheaply by nationalising. Mm. And much more fundamentally. And much more fundamentally yeah. challenge the whole model. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, thank you so much, Helen. It was really, really That's my pleasure, informative. <laughs> my pleasure, and thank you for, for asking me to be on the podcast. Thank you. much to Helen she's really so well informed on this issue and it's great to have her on the podcast there are other national NHS campaigns going on one is an NHS reinstatement bill going through Parliament tabled by Eleanor Smith MP aimed at reversing the damaging privatisation and marketisation of the NHS and restoring the NHS to um, full public accountability you can read all about the bill on nhsbillnow.org and you can write to your MP and ask them to support the bill. There have also been two judicial reviews going through the courts this year, one brought by the campaign group 999 Call for the NHS and another spearheaded by Alison Pollock, a prominent academic and campaigner, along with the wonderful late Stephen Hawking. Both these cases failed in their main aim to call ACOs to be illegal. 999 Call are appealing the ruling and have launched a crowdfunding appeal to cover legal costs. You can read more on their website, 999callfornhs.org.uk. One positive outcome of the legal process has been that the government has been compelled by the courts to be fully accountable in its implementation of ACOs and to carry out um, full public consultation, something the government has up to now dodged by making information on this root and branch reorganisation of the NHS utterly opaque and inaccessible. Anyway, we'll see how that pans out. There are brilliant websites out there where you can get loads more information. There is also the Keep Our NHS Public website and Public Health Campaign, sorry, and Health Campaigns Together, which are also excellent. The next episode will focus the issue of charging migrants for healthcare as part of the hostile environment and so-called health tourism. Please subscribe to the podcast so you get notifications when the next one is released. And also, finally, I forgot to say many thanks to my cousin Jim McGrother for his help with some of the technicalities of setting up this podcast. 
Okay, great. I look forward to, well, I won't see you, but I hope you will hear me on the next podcast. Bye. Thank you.